in this chapter, we find that Jesus is with three different sets of people. And in each encounter, we can see a different theme coming out. Now, each of these three themes is a crucial part of what it means to live as a true disciple of Jesus Christ. And so, very simply, we're going to look at each theme in turn. Here's the first one. Understanding the passion of God. Verses 2 to 13. The story begins after Jesus explains what it means to take up our cross and follow him. We find that six days later, three disciples, Peter, James and John, go with Jesus up a high mountain. And one of the good things about living in Scotland is that we have some of the most impressive mountain scenery in the world. And we are not biased. Well, the mountain here in this story was most likely Mount Hermon in Palestine. And Mount Hermon is located just north of Caesarea Philippi, which you can see on the map. So what actually took place on this mountain? There are two things to notice here. Firstly, there was an extraordinary event. Now the mountain in the Bible is the place of divine revelation. And that's exactly what we find here. If you look at verses 2 to 6, something took place here on this mountain which transcended normal experience. We read that Jesus was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. The word transfigured here describes Jesus' change into another form. In the Luke's account, we discover it was as Jesus prayed that the appearance of his face changed. Jesus shines with heavenly glory. His power and majesty were momentarily visible. But that's not all. Something else happened. Moses and Elijah appeared talking with Jesus. Moses represented the law, and Elijah represented the prophets. So what does this mean? When Moses and Elijah appeared, what it showed was that Jesus was the fulfillment of both the Old Testament law and the prophetic promises. Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. And it must have been an incredible sight. And that's why Peter didn't know what to say. He blots out, Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Maybe you're getting ready to go on your summer holidays. Maybe you're thinking about that at this very moment. I hope not. We're off to Keswick this year for the convention, and I hope it stays dry. And depending on where you go, you might see some amazing sights, maybe even a wonder of the world, the pyramids of Egypt or the Grand Canyon. But imagine being Peter, James or John and seeing this. But we find here not only an extraordinary event, we also find a command to obey. If you look at verses 7 to 13, we find that the command we are to obey reveals the passion of God. A cloud appeared, and a cloud in the Bible is a symbol of God's presence. 
Read in Exodus chapter 19, that a cloud appeared at Mount Sinai before God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. From the clouds, God spoke. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. And the same thing is said at Jesus' baptism in the River Jordan in Mark chapter 1. What is being stressed here is that Jesus is God's son as no one else is. He is unique. And therefore God longs that his son be given the honour and the glory due to his unique name. That is the passion of God. And that's why God says, This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. The word listen here means more than just to hear. It is to obey. It is obedient listening. We are to follow and obey Christ. So in short, the passion of God is for the glory of Jesus Christ. We see this again in Philippians chapter 2. God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Someone who recognised the passion of God was Billy Graham. On his last mission to Scotland, when he arrived in the States, Billy Graham was greeted by some overly enthusiastic admirers. So the first thing he did, before he said anything else, was he turned to Isaiah chapter 42. And he read, I am the Lord, that is my name, I will not give my glory to another. He understood the passion of God, the righteous jealousy of God for his own glory and the glory of his Son. And that is why we have evangelistic events like this weekend with Fiona Castle and John Harney. And it's the main reason why we're involved again this year as a church in the Edinburgh Festival. We share the passion of God. We want to bring glory and honour to Jesus Christ in the heart of this city. And sharing the passion of God will also show in how you set your priorities. For example, you may find yourself in a position at work where you have a clear choice to make. Will you take a stand as a Christian to do the right thing so that Christ would be glorified in that situation? So that is the first thing we come to in living as a true disciple. Understanding the passion of God. And the second thing we come to is learning from a painful lesson. So from the mountain, here we come down to earth. Verses 14 to 19. Here we find the disciples were about to learn an important lesson, not through success, but through failure. Two weeks ago, I received a letter 
from the Lothian and Borders police force. Time for confession. Apparently, let me explain, apparently I was doing 34 miles per hour. Going to a church committee meeting at Barry Sprott's house. We all learn from our painful lessons. So what is the scene? After the amazing experience of seeing the transfiguration, Peter, James and John come down from the mountain with Jesus. They come, in, they come into the world that we all live in. David Garland writes in his excellent commentary on Mark's Gospel, Christians do not live in the mountain, but down in the valley, where confusion and mayhem reign, and where they must continue to joust with Satan. So they come down, and look what they find. They find other disciples arguing with the teachers of the law. A man had brought his son who was possessed by an evil spirit. However, the disciples were powerless to do anything about it. The artist Raphael's unfinished last work captures this dual scene. On the mountain, the light of glory shines as Christ appears in his majesty. But back down on earth, there is darkness because the disciples have no power to help a dire case of human need. So firstly, let's have a look at the problem. The problem is, the disciples were not able to drive out this evil spirit. Yet this is strange. In Mark chapter 6, we read that they had driven out demons while on a previous mission. This is what we read. They went out and preached that people should repent. Here we go. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. So our immediate question is, what had gone wrong? We find the answer in verse 19. Their confidence was misplaced. They were relying on their own strength, on what had happened in the past. And you see the same thing in the business world. For example, IBM had been a very successful company. But then market changes came with the PC revolution. Desktop computers were in. However, IBM wasn't prepared. They were focused on providing a product that customers were not asking for. By 1983, IBM's losses reached $8 billion. IBM's confidence was misplaced. So test yourself. Where is your confidence? Is it in your bank balance? And if you shouldn't, no, the answer is clearly no. Or is it in your job? Is it in your education? Is it in the past? Or is it in God? The disciples' confidence was misplaced. 
but to their credit, they wanted to learn from the mistake. So they asked Jesus, why couldn't we drive it out? So now we come to the solution. We find the solution in verse 29. The solution to the problem is prayerful dependence upon God. Our confidence must always be in God. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, not that we are confident in ourselves, but our confidence comes from God. And it is prayer which demonstrates our reliance upon God. So the challenge to all of us, including myself, is how is your prayer life going? To what extent is prayer a part of your life? Listen to what John Bunyan, author of the Christian classic, Pilgrim's Progress, wrote. You can do more than pray after you have prayed, but you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. And if you notice in the footnotes here, in verse 29, there's a reference to prayer and fasting. And whether it's original or not, this verse describes sacrificial and costly prayer. Can I suggestion? Maybe you're like me, and you find it difficult concentrating in prayer. Well, how about going for a walk outside and praying at the same time? Or going into a room in your home and spending time there with God in prayer. God's throne of grace is always open to us. It is a tremendous privilege. And thirdly, let's look briefly at the second chance the disciples got. They had messed up here. But notice something. It didn't end there. Failure did not disqualify them for Christian service. They were given a second chance. We read in the book of Acts that they were going to be Christ's witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Empowered by the Holy Spirit and depending fully on God, they were going to set the world ablaze for Christ. So we have looked at the first two themes in living as a true disciple. Understanding the passion of God and learning from a painful lesson. Then we come to the third theme. Trusting in a powerful Christ. Verses 20 to 32. Someone who came out well in this chapter is the man whose son had an evil spirit. He trusted in Christ. And we find there are two aspects to trusting in Christ. Firstly, there is a growing faith. Last night was the Operation Mobilisation International Night at the Playhouse Theatre. And it was a great night. It was the highlight of a visit by the OM ship Dulos, which came to Edinburgh at the beginning of June. Now, the founder of OM, as you might know, is a man called George Verwer. And OM started off in 1957 when George and three friends became burdened by the spiritual needs of Mexico. And so they went to Mexico on a mission during the summer holiday. 
But as with all of us, George wants to grow in his faith in what God could do. And this led to the buying of two ships for world evangelization. One of which is the Dulos, which goes all over the globe. And apparently, it is the oldest passenger ship in the world. Therefore, you would need faith just to live in that ship. I wouldn't live in it. And like George Fair were having a vision for these ships, the man whose son had an evil spirit was challenged in his faith. You know, if you look at verses 23 and 24, he recognised that his faith was far from perfect. So he said to Jesus, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. He was about to grow in his faith in what God could do. And growing in our faith is a daily process for each one of us. It's all part of living as a true disciple of Jesus Christ. Sinclair Ferguson comments here, Faith is man in his weakness, trusting God's promise in his word. Only through such weaknesses is the strength of God seen. Jesus' promise to him in verse 23 is, everything is possible for him who believes. Nothing is too difficult for God. Yet this doesn't mean I'm guaranteed a brand new BMW, just because I want one. That's not what having faith means. What having faith does mean is that we will set no limits on the power of God. We will set no limits as to what God can do. And if you notice here, the emphasis, is, the emphasis is not primarily on the man's faith. The emphasis is on the power of Christ. Donald English writes here, the emphasis then is not the quality of our faith, but on the power of the master with whom we are joined by faith. And secondly, we find here not only a growing faith, but a faithful God. And we see here a key reason why it makes absolute sense to trust in God over every single aspect of our lives. Even when we don't always understand everything. In verse 20 we read, When the Spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. The Spirit recognised that Jesus was infinitely more powerful. Why? Because in Jesus we meet God. And therefore he has supreme authority. He alone is the Lord. We can watch television and see trouble in different parts of the world. Maybe the continued unrest in Iraq. Or the terrorist threats from Al-Qaeda. And we can feel as though things are getting a bit out of control. But what we are reminded here is that God is in supreme control. The Lord is sovereign. And God is faithful. Therefore, nothing will happen in your life that God will not allow to happen. We are trusting in a powerful Christ. We started this morning by thinking about Sir Ranulph Fiennes. Sir Ranulph is someone who lives a life of a true adventurer. And that is why he is described in the Guinness Book of World Records as the world's 
greatest living explorer. But what if someone was to describe you? What would they say? Would they say that you are living the life of a true disciple? Living as a true disciple involves being on the mountain. It means catching a vision of the passion of God that Jesus Christ be given the honour and the glory due to his unique name. And it involves coming down to earth, learning from our mistakes, and trusting in a powerful Christ over every aspect of our lives. The challenge I want to leave with you this morning is, are you living the life of a true disciple. Let's pray.